Always a joy to hear、um, testimony of believers that give praise and honor to our Lord. Thank you for that again, Stephanie. Well, we're continuing our now 9-10 part study on the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith, part two of hermeneutics. I have a lot of pages of notes I must start right away、uh, if I'm going to not do a part three next week. Pastor John Smith used this illustration during one of his sermon sessions at our Pillars Retreat. I also read this illustration on a web blog written by a Mr. Tim Chalice, so I want to give appropriate credit.、Um, but I, in hearing this illustration and reading about it, I thought it was perfect for、um, today's study on hermeneutics. The story illustration is about a、uh, popular show on PBS called The Antique Roadshow. I'm sure、uh, many, if not most, if not all of you have seen this show sometime in your lives. The show affords people the opportunity to bring, bring their antique possessions, whether it's furniture, paintings, toys, or anything else, and have them appraised by some of the world's foremost experts in antiquities.、Uh, I've seen it a few times, and I'm just shocked at the sheer value of some of these seemingly worthless objects. And、um, I always、uh, look around my living room to see if there's anything in my household that would be worth, worth some value. And I go back to watching it because I'm pretty certain. I don't need an appraiser to tell me that all we have is not worth too much. But it's always fun, isn't it, to see people jump up and down, their eyes pop out, you know, as they realize that what they have in their possession is not some、um, item worth you know, a few dollars, but it's worth, in fact, hundreds. Thousands of dollars, or maybe even more.、Uh, every episode affords us to see some junk, seemingly junk, transformed to treasure. Now, on one episode, they featured the most valuable item they have ever shown on the show. An elderly, an elderly gentleman from Tucson, Arizona, brought in an old blanket. He had inherited from his dad several years before. He knew it was old, believed that it had some value, perhaps a few hundred, maybe a few thousand dollars. After inheriting it, he threw it over a rocking chair in his bedroom. Did not really think about it until he heard that the show was coming to his town, Tucson, Arizona, so he brought it to be appraised.、Uh, he explained that it was the appraiser. Took one look at this blanket and took a step back. He was shocked at what he had, what he was beholding. He explained that it was a Navajo chief's blanket woven in 1840s. It was in wonderful condition. It was one of the oldest intact Navajo weaves survived the 21st century. Certainly one of only a tiny handful to exist outside of museum collections. It was extremely valuable. A rare national treasure of incredible value. Because of its rarity and historical significance, he had no trouble assessing, assigning a value of somewhere between $350,000 to a half a million dollars. This Navajo blanket. This elderly man almost started to cry. His eyes were welling up with tears. He could not believe what he was hearing. He was choked up, tears welling up in his eyes. He asked to hear the amount again. Did you say three hundred fifty dollars or three hundred fifty thousand dollars plus? 
You know, he walked in with his blanket draped over his shoulder. He walked out with two security guards, right, with guns, walking him straight to the bank. Got the largest security deposit they had, uh, deposit box they had to put it uh, uh, securely and safely. Now, the blanket had not changed. It was exactly the same blanket that he brought in to that roadshow. But what changed was the appraisal. The man had changed. What he had seen as a blanket of no extraordinary value, he now realized was an extremely rare and valuable national treasure. He didn't see the value of it before, but now he saw the value of it. And so how he took care of it, how he um, valued it, how he cherished it in his heart changed completely. I remember experiencing something like this about nine years ago. I, I remember experiencing something similar to this nine years ago. It was fall of 1997. Uh, I was just married to my wife, Serene. We were about two months into our, our marriage. I was invited to speak at a retreat in Seattle, Washington. And um, they asked me to come. That would mean I would be separated from my wife for about five days. They asked me to speak on Sunday and the retreat that followed that Sunday. Well, I, I kind of didn't want to go. Um, I'd just been married. I don't want to leave my wife right after. But I'm also a pastor, called to preach. Sren told me to go, so I went. And I went for the first time in my ministry life. Um, there was zero response to the Word of God. I, was, I had never been, and since then, never been so discouraged by a church before. I mean, I preached my heart out. You know, I, I would have just danced on my head if I could get some kind of reaction from them. But after each sermon, the response was cold. The response was non-existent. Talking to the leaders, the pastors, the members of the church, it was clear they did not have love for Christ, did not have love for God's Word, and love for the church. After each session, I would hold up in my room and I would just go to the Lord in prayer. I would pour out my heart, so discouraged. I, I literally wanted to just leave. I wanted to just, uh, if I had a car, I might have left. Uh, but they drove me there. I was kind of like um, trapped in that retreat site. But it was just the most discouraging experience. I came home discouraged and dejected. I felt like someone had stabbed my heart. And I needed to study the Bible once again to see the value of God's Word. Is the, is the Bible truly God's Word? Is it divine truth? What does God's Word, what place does God's Word have in my heart? Do I respond that coldly, that callously to God's Word in my personal life? I, I opened up to two passages and studied them for several days. The first passage was Psalm 19, 7-11, where David said, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and altogether righteous. <coughs> More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey 
and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Lord, in my study that week, God spoke to me through Psalm 19, and I began to repent because I had also had a callous, flippant, low view of the Word of God. I far too often responded to Scripture as if it was something that was very insignificant, not valuable, not important in my Christian life. I then turned to Deuteronomy 32, 46-47. Moses, before he dies, he's not able to enter the promised land. He gives last exhortations. He pleads with the nation of Israel before he, his death on the importance of God's truth. And he tells them, Deuteronomy 32, 46, Take to heart all the words I have solemnly declared to you this day, so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of this law. They are not just idle words to you. They are your life. By them you will live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. The Bible has never been the same to me since that day. I have not been the same since that day. The Bible has not changed. The Bible didn't change, but I changed. My estimation of the Bible changed. My view of the Scriptures changed. My understanding of the value of God's Word changed. Rather than being just another book on a rather busy bookshelf, my Bible from that point on became more precious than gold. Sweeter than honey. It was, they were not just idle words to me. They were not just books filled with precepts and instructions and stories. The Bible became alive, became the very Word of God. The Holy Spirit was a divine appraiser. He opened my eyes. He convicted my heart. He caused me to understand that this book that I'm holding is divine truth. Showed me the sheer value of the Bible. Think about it. And hold your Bible with one of your hands. You know, look at the Bible that you're holding today. What is your view of that book? What is your appraisal of the value of this book that you're holding in your hand? It is amazing to consider that God has revealed Himself and preserved His revelation in a book that we are holding today. That divine truth is not in a church, it's not in a bishop, it's not in a pope, it's not in a denomination. Divine truth is not in experience, it's not in ecstasy, it's not in intuition, it's not in our hearts, it's not in our feelings. Divine truth, all of it, Sufficient for salvation and sanctification is contained in a book and all of us have access to that book. We hold it with our hands. This is what caused, prompted the Reformation. For it was absolutely revolutionary when Martin Luther became convinced that God spoke only in and through the book, the Bible.
that the church sat in judgment by the book. That the church did not judge the book. That people did not judge the book. That the book judges people. That book judges the church. The book judges the Pope. The book stands in authority apart and above any other authorities in this world. That book alone, Luther was convinced, was the scriptures. Piper agrees. He said, the saving, sanctifying, authoritative word of God comes to us in a book. Luther in 1545, before he died, said, let the man who would hear God speak and read Holy Scripture. If you want to hear God's voice, you want to understand God's will, you want to understand, you want to know God, know Christ, know the Holy Spirit, let him or her read the Bible, study the Bible, understand the Holy Scriptures. That is why Piper said, at the heart of every Christian's work, all of us have different occupations, but all of us have one vocation, one calling. The heart of all of us, God's call to us, is book work. To work in the book. To, 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 to spend ourselves, to labor, to understand the book called the Bible. Call it reading, meditation, re- reflection, study, exegesis, call it whatever you will. <clears throat> a central part of all our work as Christians is to wrestle God's meaning from the book and then proclaim it in the power of the Holy Spirit. In 1533, Luther said, The Word of God is the greatest, most necessary, most important thing in Christianity. Greatest, most necessary, most important thing in Christianity. What is your view of the Bible? I'm not talking about your sentiment. I'm not talking about your experiences. I'm not talking about your your emotions. I'm talking about observe your life. Observe where and to whom do you give your best efforts. Your greatest energy, your loftiest thoughts. What do you work for in your life? That determines your view of the scriptures. How do you treat the Bible? Do you just lay it to gather dust? Like that man hung his blanket over a rocking chair in his bedroom. You just lay it on your desk, gathering dust during the week, only to be picked up on Sunday mornings. Right. Do you read magazines? You know, uh, do you watch TV? Do you spend more time on the internet, more than the Bible, those things reveal the place that God's Word has in your heart. That is the plain truth. But the Holy Spirit is here to convict all of us, to appraise the value of the Bible to Christians that know we must not neglect the truth in this way. Because it is far more valuable, far more precious, far more important than anything this world has to offer to us. That is why we have this session called hermeneutics. Right. It's not just just to you know talk about some novel, lofty themes that have no relevancy to the Christian life. It's not so that we can show off our scholarship or talk about how much we know. It's because we cannot rightly value God's Word apart from a right interpretation. Right. You know, a lot of um, 
Orthodox Jews do this. A lot of uh, you know people who are into high religion do this. They have this um, relational or practical reverence towards the Bible as if that's the way to honor God's Word. So in their library, they place the Bible on the highest bookshelf. Right? Um, if they tear a page, they bury it. Right? They bury portions of the Bible. They always hold the Bible with two hands. They never let you know, any book be on top of the Bible. You know, sometimes I get offended. We're at a small group and somebody brings, puts their Coke bottle on top of the Bible. I get a little offended, but I don't say anything. I just feel that's not proper, but, you know, that's a personal thing. And they put their, like, Big Mac on top of their burger or something, I mean, their Bible. But that's not, I mean, that's not the way God wants us to uh, respond to the Word of God. The right way to value, rightly value God's Word begins with the right interpretation, right understanding, right application, which leads to right teaching. That is why we're having this session. Um, One side note, though, is that people have accused us of having too high a view of the Bible. The Cornerstone Bible Church, we're too committed. Now, first of all, I wish that was a problem, right? I wish that was a reality. You know, I always, that's my prayer, Right, where we would have to rein people back. Oh, wow, that's too intense, brother. Right? <laughs> hey, sister, you're reading a little too much. Or too much scripture memory, you know? I, man, that would be my prayer request answer. All of us, right? First of all, that's not even close to being true. Right? They, they you know, uh, uh, encourage us too much. They applaud us too much. Secondly, you know, they, they accuse us of being pharisaical. Danger of Phariseeism if you're too committed to the Bible. They don't understand the Bible, right? Uh, the problem with the Pharisees was not that they believed the Bible too much. The problem with the Pharisees was they did not believe the Bible. Right? That's the, that's the problem with the Pharisees. That was the indictment that Christ made against the religious leaders of Israel. That they did not believe. They didn't have a high view of the scriptures. They had a high view of their culture, high view of their traditions, high view of their religious laws over against the scriptures. And that was the problem. John, 8, 30, uh, John 5, 26. 5, 46. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. Alright? If you believed the Old Testament, you would believe me. But because you don't believe in the Old Testament, you do not believe me. So the, the Phariseeism is when you don't believe the Bible. Because if you don't believe the Bible, you believe something else. You're driven by something else. And it's not sound theology. It's not biblical doctrine. It's not scriptural truth. You're driven by culture, tradition, or worldly philosophies. Anything but the Word of God. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were fueled by. Commitment to Scripture does not lead to legalism. Commitment to Scripture leads to freedom. It frees us. James 1.25, but the man who looks intently into the perfect law, that gives freedom. Right? Freedom from the fear of man. Right? Freedom from legalism. Freedom from uh, tradition-imposed rules. Cultural-based laws. Freedom from fear of superstition or myths and fables and old, old wives' tales. James 8.32, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
Romans 8.15, you do not receive a spirit that makes you a slave to fear, but you receive the spirit of sonship, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. Freedom to know that we are in the Father's house, that there is no condemnation, that we have been adopted as co-heirs with Christ. There's an inheritance, unfading, unspoiled, eternal, waiting for us, that cannot be taken away. That gives us freedom. 2 Corinthians 3.17, now the Lord is the Spirit, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Not only is it not possible for us to have a high enough view of the Word of God, secondly, if we were to, what we would experience is not greater slavery, greater freedom. It would not lead us to Phariseeism, it will lead us more like Jesus Christ. Right? Greater love for the Word of God will not lead us away from Christ, who is the author of the Scriptures. Greater conformity to the Word of God will lead us to greater conformity to the author, who is Jesus Christ. So let us not be intimidated by the accusations of people who don't know the Scriptures. Let us not be afraid of those who have taken to extremes what God did not intend. Let us not be afraid of, of these consequences that are not consistent with the right view of the Scriptures. Let us, without hindrance, immerse ourselves to love the Scriptures, hold it high in our hearts, and study it with our highest efforts. Now, I added some things to the outline. It's in your bulletin. Before we get into the general principles of hermeneutics, I even reduced the nine general principles to six. I want to consider together um, the four pre-commitments necessary for right interpretation. Before we employ the right methods in interpreting scripture, these foundational pre-commitments, pre-understandings are required, they are essential. First pre-commitment, first foundational uh, understanding is that you must be a Christian to rightly divide the Word of God. You must be a Christian. No one can fully and accurately comprehend the meaning of the Bible unless he is regenerate. Why? Because 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us that the unsaved person is spiritually blind. The unsaved person is spiritually blind. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually blind. This means that apart from the saving work of the Holy Spirit, a person cannot accept the meaning of the biblical text. Without the Spirit, these texts are foolishness to him. The unsaved do not, cannot embrace the truths of God's word. They might be able to understand the mechanics of the text, but not its significance. Not its significance. Let me illustrate this. Uh, at the annual lectureship of biblical studies at the Interpretation School of Theology in Germany, a professor Ludwig Kaufwissen okay, delivered an address entitled Paul's Doctrine of Justification by Faith. Delivered a lecture. In this one-hour lecture, this Professor Kaufwissen described more clearly than anyone has ever before what Paul meant by his doctrine of justification by faith. He carefully and brilliantly described the implications of this doctrine in the life of the Christian church, both past and present. And the listener said, if the Apostle Paul was there, they would, he would agree. 
He might even have said, thank you, professor. No one has ever explained what I meant as clearly and as well. After he concluded, he was warmly applauded, and he added, but of course, you know, this is all nonsense, because he is not a Christian. He understands the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and yet his conclusion is it's foolishness. By the exclusivity of salvation in Christ alone, that we're just by faith apart from works, it's not true. I understand it, but it's not true. After the address, someone happened to see the wife of this professor, who is a committed Christian, and asked her what she thought Paul meant by his doctrine of justification. She replied, well, you must understand, I am not a trained theologian. I'm just a lay Christian, a housewife. And at this point, tears began to form in her eyes, and she began to explain what Paul meant when we were justified by faith. Now, who understands Paul's teaching better? The professor or his wife? The one with the degrees, the one with the, uh, the letters behind his name, or his wife? No letters, but she has the Holy Spirit. The issue is not who has a better mental grasp of the text, but who is a believer. Because only a Christian truly understands, receives, and believes in the Scripture. So the first requirement is that you must be a believer. And this kind of goes into commentaries. You want to read commentaries from men who have written who are Christians. You don't want to read commentaries, people who are commenting on the Bible who are not believers. You don't want to give authority to men who are not Christians just because they have some letters behind their names. They think they're authorities in the Bible. They might understand the mechanics. They might understand the details. But they don't embrace the truth. So their conclusions will... They cannot be right. Conclusions cannot be accurate, cannot be correct. Second requirement is that we must recognize the spiritual factor. The spiritual factor. The full purpose of the Bible is realized only by the work of the Holy Spirit who illuminates the mind to witness the veracity of the divine truths. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Illumination. It's not revelation, but illumination. Opening our eyes to see the wonderful things that are in the law of the Lord. This tells us that Bible interpretation is first and foremost a spiritual work. Spiritual work. It's not about IQ. It's It's not about intelligence. It's about the condition of the heart. You know, a young child can better understand the Bible. Because they have a childlike faith. And someone who has learned, who is educated, and yet this pride has filled his heart. Pastor MacArthur has said, it is impossible to properly understand God's objective revelation in Scripture apart from the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. Illumination is not equated with either revelation or inspiration. It communicates no new divine truth, but rather it enables us to comprehend God's truth and the complete and final revelation of it. No clear understanding of Scripture leading to a powerful obedience is possible without the Spirit's work of illumination. Therefore, We're Christians, but before we study the Bible, 
must understand that holiness, personal holiness is important. You can't bypass that. You know, when you're studying physics, you can bypass that. You know, going for your MBA, holiness, optional, right? Maybe it's a hindrance to MBA or, you know, studying law or something. Just a joke, right? <laughs> right? You know, anything else, like, you know, like any other study in the world, your heart condition is of no relevance to it. But not the Bible. It has everything to do with, the Bible, with Bible study, our heart condition. Holiness, prayerfulness, and the character of the interpreter must not be overlooked. Right? It has everything to do with the spiritual state of the interpreter, Bible interpretation. That's why 1 Peter 2, 1 says, Put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Then, like newborn infants, crave pure spiritual milk. I see the order. I repent of sin. I confess your sins. That's why Bible study is so hard. That's why Bible reading, Bible meditation, that's why preaching is so difficult. Right? Because before we open the Bible, we must open our hearts. And it's so humbling, so difficult. When the Holy Spirit does spiritual surgery, it exposes us just to just the evil, the wickedness, the selfishness, just the sinfulness of our hearts. And then to study the Bible, that's why Bible study is so difficult. But that must be done because apart from it, right interpretation of the Bible is impossible. Robert Murray McShane wrote to a friend in the ministry, do not forget the culture of the inner man, I mean of the heart. How diligently the cavalry officer keeps his saber clean and sharp. Every stain he rubs off with the greatest care. Remember, you are God's sword. You are God's instrument. I trust a chosen vessel unto him to bear his name in great measure according to the purity and perfection of the instrument will be the success. It is not great talents that God blesses so much as likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. Now let me just add a little addendum here. Here. This is not a license for laziness, right? Just work on your heart, work on holiness, purity, and sanctification, and you skip the part of diligent study, of applying biblical methodology, biblical principles to studying the scriptures. Bernard Ram in his book, Bible Interpretation, said that the ministry of the Spirit cannot replace careful analysis and sound exegesis. It does assure that in conjunction with such diligence, the believer can apprehend the significance and scope of God's revelation. They're both and. It's not either or. There's this intellectual, anti-intellectual mindset where you know, just having a good heart is all you need for right interpretation. And they kind of excuse their laziness, their inaccuracies, lack of detail. No, it's both and. Work on the heart, but also you must plow the Bible. Work with your hands. And both together help you in your interpretation of the Bible. Thirdly, study for self-application. Study for self-application. And this uh, is for all of us, but especially for those. I'm preaching to myself here. Preaching to the pastors, flock shepherds, small group leaders. You You Sunday school teachers out there. This is for you. All your husbands out there, and all Christians who ever share the gospel, that's all of us, right? But in a way, 
it's really for those who are in the role of ministering and teaching the Word of God. That as we go to the Bible, we must not be just to make a sermon, to prepare a study, to make a lesson. It must not be, oh, i got to teach my kids. I'll put something together. Oh, my wife is struggling with this. I'll tailor make this lesson for my wife. Our purpose to send the Bible must always be for ourselves. Ezra 7.10 Ezra set his heart to study the Word of God and then what? Practice it. And then to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. So his first step was to study. Second was to obey. And then it was to teach. It's a proper order. This is one of the occupational hazards of ministry. That's why you who teach shouldn't jump into teaching and jump into leadership too quickly. Because one of the hazards of leadership is there's a tendency for us to read our Bibles as ministers, as pastors, as leaders. Tendency for us to pray because, oh, I have to pray. I should pray because I'm a small group leader. Temptation to do all that we do because we are elders, pastors, church leaders, maybe members of the praise team, Sunday school teachers. We're serving in the church. May we never be such believers who use the Bible as a means to another end, an earthly end, where we use Christ for our personal agendas, where we use godliness for our personal gain. May we not confuse the means and the end. The end is Bible study. The end is worship of God. The end is relationship with Christ, growing in Him. It's not a means, I've got to be godly so that I'll be right, used, or I can do this in the church, or you know, validates my role in the church. No, Christ is the end. Study is the end. Obedience is the end. Finally, the final pre-understanding is that the inspiration of the Bible includes infallibility and inerrancy. We must believe in the inspiration of the Bible, which includes infallibility and inerrancy. We must approach the Bible as a divine text and that all of it is inspired by God. We are not studying to support inspiration. We are studying it because it is inspired by God. Matthew 5.18, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture is inspired by God, breathed out by God. Believing in the inerrancy of the Scriptures, that all of all of it, and the autographs and the original texts are without error. That the Bible is our final authority, and I would add, the Bible is completely sufficient for all of our needs, for our salvation, for our gospel ministry, and is sufficient for our growth, growth of ourselves and those we love. Well, let's go to the principles, general principles of hermeneutics. 
two weeks ago I had nine. Lack of time, I don't want to do part three. We need to move on. So narrowed it down to six irreducible principles of studying the scriptures. First is the clarity of the scriptures. The clarity of the scriptures. Also called the perspicuity of the Bible. The Bible indeed is an ancient book, a very large book, a book with many perplexing passages. Proposed that there are over 38 proposed interpretations for 1 Corinthians 15.29. That verse about baptism for the dead. We're not certain as to what Paul meant by that verse. This is an occasional letter. Paul is answering questions. So we know his answers, but we don't know the questions. We don't know what the issues were. We don't know what the controversy was. Therefore, it's hard for us to discern what is Paul talking about here in verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 15. Because we only have his response. So we understand that the Bible is a complex book. And at times, interpretations are hard to come come to. But many have used this um, issue to challenge the supposed clarity of the Bible. They have used to say, used this to say that the whole Bible is ununderstandable. It's beyond understanding. It's a book, as Stephanie said, a book of mysteries, incomprehensible to us. And the Roman Catholic Church have used that to say, God has bestowed to us the accurate interpretation of the Bible. And we have the sole authority to rightly interpret the scriptures. And any inter- interpretation that disagrees with ours is erroneous. It's not from God. Well, Martin Luther and the Reformers rejected this view. Martin Luther in his book, The Bondage of the Will, he defined the Protestant theory of the clarity, the perspicuity of the scriptures. He said the Bible is clear because of the external and internal clarity. External and internal. His answer is fundamental for the practice of sound hermeneutics. The external clarity is the grammatical clarity. Grammatical clarity. The scriptures are written within the laws of language. Laws of grammar. So in the Bible, a verb is a verb. A noun is a noun. A direct object is a direct object. All the rules of grammar apply to the scriptures. Yes, there are different genres of narratives, poetry, prophecy, right? Of epistolary uh, writings. Yes, there are different genres. Within those genres, there are rules of grammar. Likewise, the scriptures. Therefore, if an interpreter properly follows the laws of language, right? transcending the gap that exists in terms of geography and history, in terms of genre that is written in, any interpreter, using the laws of language, he or she can know the right meaning of the text. It's a difficult way of saying a simple thing. We read it interpretly, literally. We interpret it literally. We are to interpret the Bible like we would any other book in existence in the world. Normal interpretation. Normal sense of words. We're not interpreting it spiritually. We're not allegorizing it. We're not interpreting the, uh, the white parts. We're not having an ex- spiritual experience with the Bible. We interpret normally like we would any other book. The internal clarity refers to the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart and mind of the believer. Where... The Holy Spirit works in the heart of the believer to understand 
to comprehend and to discern truth from error. The Holy Spirit illumines the believer's mind to acknowledge the truth of Scripture as truth of God. And coupled together, the believer is able to rightly conclude on the meaning of the Scriptures. Now, this does not mean we know the meaning of everything in the Scriptures. There are many passages that are puzzling and unclear. Like issues of eschatology. Issues of even spiritual gifts. Issues of even the head coverings of 1 Corinthians 11. Many passages that are difficult to fully understand. But this does not minimize the great clarity that exists in the orthodox cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. The doctrine of God's trinity and unity is clear. The deity of Christ, it's not obscure. The deity of the Holy Spirit, right? The deity of God the Father, Salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. There's no confusion there. There is great clarity and great unity throughout the world of all Bible-believing Christians in these cardinal doctrines. There might be disagreements on the second level of, of doctrines where it pertains to church polity, pertains to future events like eschatology. Those are difficult. and There's freedom for disagreement. But on the essential doctrine of the Christian faith, we would hold to the perspicuity of the scriptures, the Bible is clear. No deviance from these truths are not allowed in the guise of interpretation. The second principle is the accommodation of revelation. Accommodation of revelation. This kind of has to do with the whole the Bible code issue, the Da Vinci code issue, the accommodation of Revelation tells us that, that God gave the scriptures in a way that the truth of God can be understood by the human mind. God gave us a revelation of himself in a way, in a manner that can be understood by us. God accommodated his truth so that man is able to interpret and understand it. The Bible was written in three known languages of man, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, not in some alien language and translated for us to English. God didn't write the Bible in some secret code that can be understood and known by a select few people. No, the scriptures were originally written in a human language and there is further accommodation of the Bible where all the more the teachings of the prophets, apostles, and Jesus Christ himself, they reduced glorious themes of, of divine truth in ways that we can understand it. Right? clear example is the parables of Christ. When he was explaining the kingdom of God, he accommodated to our feeble minds so that we would understand this lofty subject of God's kingdom by saying God's kingdom is like a mustard seed. God's kingdom is like a wedding banquet. God's kingdom is like a pearl hidden in a field, a great treasure found in the field. A man in his joy sold all that he had and bought that field. We don't understand fully the concept of God's kingdom, but yes, Lord, we understand what you say. God's kingdom is like a pearl of great price that is more valuable to us than our own lives, that we should be joyful in joy, forsake everything that we have and own to acquire your kingdom. 
We understand when you say God's kingdom is like a wedding banquet, it's a place of joy, a place of celebration, when the, the bride of the church is married to the uh, groom of, of Christ. We understand that's awaiting us. And that's the second principle, the accommodation of revelation it's not written, written in a mysterious way beyond us. No, God wrote it to us in human language and furthermore, in ways that we can grasp the truths of Scripture. Third principle is that Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. Or obscure passages in the Bible must give way to clear passages. This is a reformer's response to the Roman Catholic Church when they said that, they, that the Roman Catholic Church had the final authority in interpreting the Bible. And the reformer said, no, the church doesn't have the final authority. No, the Pope doesn't. Councils don't. You know who has the final authority on interpreting Scripture? Scripture does. The Bible has the authority on interpreting itself. Now, Scripture here is used in two senses where Scripture, the total Scripture, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament interprets the parts. Right? So we interpret a verse in the Scripture. Who do we turn to to help us, aid us in understanding that one verse? We turn to the Bible. We turn to Genesis, all the way to Revelation, to understand the parts of the Scripture. No appeal to the Roman church is necessary. In terms of Christian theology and doctrine, this means that all the obscure passages of the Bible are subservient to the clear passages. Right? All the obscure, unclear passages are subservient to those clear principles, clear verses in the Scriptures. Right. Move on to number four. Analogy of faith. Analogy of faith. This is very important. Somewhat close to the third principle. They overlap to a certain extent, but it is, there is a legitimate distinction. Analogy of faith says that there is one unified, consistent, harmonious system of faith in the Bible. One unified, consistent, harmonious system of faith in the Bible. The Bible has one author, therefore the author will not contradict himself. The Bible will not contradict itself. There seems to be contradiction, but no, it is not contradiction. It's just paradox. The Bible does not contradict. Bible complements itself. There is one system of truth, and they cohere. They agree with each other. They do not contradict. Open your Bibles to Romans 4, and if you're able to, with another finger, turn to James 2. Two passages where people have said that there, here is a contradiction in the Bible. Two systems, two uh, instructions that, that go against each other. And what happens when you, that's why all these religions don't work. They're built upon lies. And when you build a system of faith on, on a lie, it just promotes greater and greater lies. And it contradicts each other. And there's no coherent system of faith. And what happens to that? It leads people to confusion. It's like double speak. Right? When, when mom says one thing, dad says another, what happens to children? Provoked to anger, provokes confusion, provokes rebellion. Mom says you can, dad says you can't, you can, and it continues. Likewise, does the Bible teach us contradictory truths? 
or we can't understand it, therefore we're left to ourselves. One example is Romans 4 where Paul said, uh, verse 2, If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Scripture says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Not the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. If you work, that's not a gift, you earned it. But to the one who does not work, but trusts him, trusts God or justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Here is Paul's doctrine of justification by faith, through faith, by, by grace. That we're saved by grace, saved by faith alone, not by works. And yet, James seems to contradict Paul in James 2, 14 through 26. I've got to read it all. James 2, 14. Uh, let's start with verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. Verse 18, someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Do you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone? And the same way, you see that a person is, in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works? When she received the messengers and sent them out by another way, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Here's a clear contradiction in Romans 4. James says, faith apart from works is dead. You are justifi- justified by works. In Romans 4, apostles, you are justified by faith alone. How, do we, how are we to understand this? Well, Romans 4 says, that we are justified by faith. That is true, apart from works. We cannot earn salvation because if we were to earn it, it is not a gift of God. What James is saying is that it's not that we're saved by faith, but that true faith results in works. And that works that, is, that are prompted by true faith shows that your faith is true, that your faith is genuine. You say you have faith, but you have no works. You have a dead faith. You don't have true faith. You have demonic faith where even demons believe that God exists and they shake. You are worse. You don't even shake. You have no fear. You have no works. You say you have faith, but it's not faith that delivers a man from hell. The Roman Catholic formula for salvation is faith plus works equals salvation. What Paul and James are saying in Romans 4 and James 2 is faith equals salvation plus works. In both formulas, works is included. But in the Roman Catholic system, in the Jewish system, Jehovah's Witness system, Mormons, Hindus, Buddhists, works comes before salvation. You have faith and you work and you earn salvation. What Paul and James are saying, no. 
faith equals salvation, Romans 4, and works, James 2. If works is non-existent, then you need to question the validity, the genuineness of your faith. How can we come to this? Because analogy of Scripture. We believe that there's one system, one message, especially concerning our salvation. And these two passages tell us and confirm the Bible does not contradict. It complements. Another simple illustration is the deity and the humanity of Christ. John 1, 1, 14. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled us for a little while. We have seen His glory. The God only who is at the Father's side has made Him known. John 8.58 I, Before Abraham I am. John 10.30 I and the Father are one. Right? There are all these verses in Scripture that affirm the deity of Christ. At the same time, all these verses that affirm the humanity of Christ. Luke 2.52 Jesus grew in wisdom and stature before God and man. Matthew 14, he slept. He was tired. First Timothy 2.5, Before God and man, there is one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. Is that a contradiction? Jesus Christ is God? Jesus Christ is man? Analogy of scripture, no. One unified message. Council of Chalcedon said, yes. We, we, the Bible tells us that Jesus is fully God and He is fully man. Right. The unity of the Scriptures. Important principle in interpreting the Scriptures. Two more. The singleness of the meaning of Scripture. The singleness of the meaning of Scripture. In any one text, the principle mean, this principle means that a biblical text has one proper interpretation, one meaning. There are not two or three interpretations. We don't go around in a circle and say, what does this Bible mean to you? Now, there's many applications, but one interpretation. right? And there's one true $10 bill, and there are many counterfeits. So one true bill, but with that bill you can buy, you know, uh, some food, you can buy, you know, whatever, a book, you can buy your friend a gift. Many applications, but one meaning. Likewise, in the Bible, there's only one meaning, many applications. And we are studying the Bible to seek the author's intended meaning. What is the right meaning? What is the accurate interpretation? If you're studying the Apostle Paul, and you're interpreting it, and Apostle Paul sitting next to you, and he agrees. And he says, you're right, you know, that's exactly what I intended. That's my fear. When I'm preaching the Gospel of John, the Lord is standing right here. And I'm telling you, this is what Christ meant. And he's like, that's not what I meant. That's not what I meant. You got it all wrong, James. Right? You should have, you know, stayed away during grammar class because you're not using right laws of grammar, interpreting my clear subject, verb, object, sentence. Right? He's shaking his head. And I can't say, well, Jesus, that's what it means to me. No, no, no. The, the text is what the author intended. That's what we're seeking. The author's intended meaning. J.C. Ryle, I hold undoubtedly that there is a, a mighty depth in all Scripture, and in, in this respect it stands alone. But I also hold that the words of Scripture were intended to have one definite sense, and that our first goal is to discover that sense and adhere rigidly to it. 
I believe that as a general rule, the words of scripture are intended to have, like all other language, one plain, definite meaning. And that to say that words do mean a thing merely because they can be tortured into meaning it is a most dishonorable and dangerous way of handling scripture. So, singleness of the meaning of the scriptures, seeking God's intended meaning. That's what exposition is. That's what exegesis is. We're drawing out the meaning of the text. And I'm explicating, I'm explaining that meaning to you. I'm standing behind the text. Eisegesis is I'm imposing my, my interpretation into the, into the text and explaining to you what I think it is rather than what the Bible is saying. And really, in a sense, this is the secret to our ministry. This is the power behind Cornerstone Bible Church. Pastors have asked me, how do you get your people to serve the church? Right, most churches are 20% serving 80%. We can't get people to come to our members' meetings. How do you get people to come to communion service after the main service? How do you get people to go to flock and you know, 100% attendance restrict? How do you get that to happen? Because I'm not leading the church. They want to you know, get a secret. Jeez, what's your secret to getting people to do what you want to do? I can't get people to do anything that I want them to do. Because I'm not... This is not my, I'm not leading the church. Our goal is follow the Bible. And all Christians will follow the Bible. So it looks like people are following the elders, but reality, no one's following the elders. We're all following the Bible. We just happen to be the ones leading the church. Now how do we follow the Bible? By correctly understanding where the Bible is leading us. Correctly understanding the meaning of the text. Right? The author's intended meaning. The final one is the primacy of context. The primacy of context. So if you forget everything, I do this, right? Because I know I mean, we want Christianity to be this exciting thing. We go to a church and we sing loud and the sermons are fun and exciting and we get inspired and pumped up. And, but that's not Christianity. Christianity is mundane. It does not bypass the mind. I know that sensual Christianity, emotion-centered Christianity is popular. It's the norm in Christianity today. But the reality is, Christianity is through the mind. It requires discipline. It requires meditation. It requires focus. Because it's through the mind that God speaks to us through the scriptures for us to apprehend and apply the, the scriptures. So it requires discipline on our part. And so... I, that's why we have sermons like this, classes like this, retreats like this. Because for true godliness cannot be attained apart from diligent, disciplined, rigorous study. So if you forget everything, so you're not as disciplined, you're not used to concentrating for a long period of time, as you've been kind of losing focus, and you can only remember one thing, remember this one thing. The primacy of context. Context, context, context. Because taken out of context, you can use the Bible to say anything you want to say. We must commit to understanding that that every word in the Bible is part of a verse. And every verse is part of a paragraph. And every paragraph is part of a book. And that every book is part of the whole of Scripture. And you and I cannot divorce any word, any verse, and separate from its context. Because at that point, you are in danger of misapplying it, misobeying it, and misteaching it. 
context is absolutely critical in properly interpreting the Bible. Beginning with interpreting a word, context. Uh, it's a little illustration, but it might work. Last night, I wanted to see USC highlights, so took a break from study, took Serene down, you know, watched it together, watched USC barely, you know, eking out a victory against Arizona State. And afterwards, they're interviewing Coach Pete Carroll. You know, you're 6-0, and you know, halfway of the season. How do you feel? And he says, I'm pumped. I'm jacked up, right? And Serene was like, jacked up? Like, you know, that's a negative, like, connotation. Why is he sad? I'm like, well, Serene, let me finish watching the clips first. You'll <laughs> see, right? He's still running, bro. Once the clips were done, like the context, right? The context is they're 6-0. and They're winning. You know, if you, oh, someone says, oh, I got carjacked. Negative, right? That's not a good thing. Oh, I'm happy for you, brother. Like, no, carjacked. That's a negative. It's context. But 6-0, and you're winning. You're jacked up. It's a positive thing, right? You can't take that out of context and say, oh, Pete Carroll was sad last night because he said he was, he's jacked, Right? Bad illustration, but you understand what I'm saying, right? <laughs> Likewise with the Bible. Context. Let me illustrate this with 1 John. Let me get profound here now, right? 1 John 4, 4, 18. Now, I've heard people use this verse. And people have gotten angry at me. I've gone to campus ministries and preached on the holiness and fear of God, and they're like, they can't handle it. They, their Christianity has been rocked. I've just you know, cursed at them. I've just offended them because I told them to fear God. And they go to 1 John 4, uh, 18. Say, Pastor James, how can you teach us wrong, wrongly like this? How can you lead us astray by telling us to fear God? Because 4, 18 says, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Pastor James, you don't have love. You're not perfected in love because you fear God. And I, my response is, context, context, context. Verse 17. Read the verse before that. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is so, also are we in this world. John's talking about we have no fear in the day of judgment when we stand before God because of God's love has been manifested in us. He's talking about future judgment, fear of judgment when we stand before God, not present day fearing God, not in our relationship with God, not reverencing honor the Lord. He's talking about Romans 8.1, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That kind of fear, not fear in the Christian life. But do you see how you take that verse out of context and you misunderstand it and you misapply it and Christians have this cheesy kind of familiarity with God and they have these awful cheesy man-centered prayers with God. They live presumptuously. They live pridefully because they think God is a friend and they sing God is my boyfriend songs. I mean, you see how all that permeates into their, their mindset, their theology, their practice, church ecclesiology, all because they wrongly interpret 1 John 4.18. Because they took it out of context. Right? Even 1 John 5.11-13, I write these things to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. Assurance of salvation. God wants to know that I have eternal life. And so I have assurance, so I'm assured I'm a Christian. 
But they divorced those verses from 1 John 1 through 5, right? The whole book of 1 John is test yourself, examine yourself. Do you love the world or the things in the world? If you love the world, love of the Father is not in you. Anyone who is in the Father does not continue to sin. If you say you love God, you hate your brothers, then you are a liar, you are deceived, you're not of God. And then 1 John 5, 11 to 13, you see the context of the whole book, how it bears in those final few verses? Uh, people take those verses out of context, have this unwarranted assurance of their salvation when they're living in blatant sin. Well, how, how is that possible? Because they took those verses out of context from First John. So, it's the importance of context. Context, context. We're in Fulton Flock this week, and we're studying um, Genesis 20, and how Abimelech almost slept with Sarah, and how um, God intervened and rescued uh, Abimelech from that sin. And the context is important, right? Because in, in Genesis 21, Isaac, the promised child is born. If Abimelech laid with Sarah, then Isaac is not possible, right? Or it brings to discredit whether this was truly a, a promise fulfilled by God. And Isaac is a promised child for Jacob and Joseph and David and Jesus Christ. The whole new covenant is riding on Genesis 20, and God intervened because Abraham, in that small, this seemingly you know, innocuous, like innocent lie, uh, put in danger the whole new covenant. Right? Seeing the context caused you to appreciate Genesis 20. So again, context, context, context. Scripture interprets Scripture. Well, so much to say. Close our time here with just... A uh, few closing thoughts. A few closing thoughts. Um, I mean, what is your estimation of the Bible? Uh, what is your view of the Bible? If the Bible is not important. You will not take pains to make sure you're understanding it rightly. If the Bible is really unimportant, insignificant, it's just a book of just stories and it's not it doesn't contain divine truth and. <coughs> You know, it doesn't matter whether you interpret it rightly or not. But if you have been convinced by the Holy Spirit this morning, you listen to the appraiser and you believe the appraiser, it is priceless. It is God's gift. It is God's truth. They are not just idle words to me. They are my life. I am to live by them. I am to submit my life wholly to these truths. I have, to, I have to leave my family. I have to submit to my husband, raise my children, make decisions according to the Bible. If you believe that, you'll make sure you're interpreting it, understanding it rightly. So it begins with th- that heart condition. What is your view of the Bible? Would you be convinced by the Holy Spirit this morning to see just the pricelessness, a priceless value of the Bible to you? Second, would you understand that um, Bible interpretation is... Uh, you know, it's not IQ, but it's heart Q, right? HQ, heart quotient, the condition of your heart. That, yeah, you might be an excellent student, great GPA, great ability in scholarship, but you open the Bible and you're just, you're a dunce. Right? You're just dull. You can't understand simple things. You can't apply the most basic principles, right? You, you, a few hours from now, you're just back in living in sin. Right? 
And you're, you're clouded as to what you are to do. You're living life chaotically. You're confused. You don't know God's will. You're making foolish decision after foolish decision. And you don't know truth. How is that possible? It's not because you have low IQ. It's because you have not gotten rid of malice, pride, envy, jealousy. You have not put Christ to the throne of your heart. You're not honoring the Lord with your life. You're harboring sin, habitual sin. And you're living in sin. And so God's way of judgment is, you're living in sin, I'm going to give you over to your sin, where God's word won't be revealed to you. You're reading it, you're studying it, you're exegeting it, but you're not convicted, you're not convinced, you're not stirred, you're not moved, you don't see the treasure of God's law, you're not, you don't have affection for the law of God, you don't love the scriptures. Why? Because it's a sign of God's judgment. It may never come to a point once in your one point in your life where you so test test the patience of God, where you hear sermons, you open your Bible, you read books, there'll be nothing. Instead of callousness, there'll be hatred. There'll be anger. Right? There'll be offense. You'll be offended by God's word. And that's the beginnings of apostasy. Don't come near that line. Begin today of repenting sin. And you say, well, I'm not convinced this is sin. That should show you how far your heart is strayed. That should convince you how cold, how hard your heart is. The fact that you're not convinced that what you're doing is not sin or it's not sinful. Repent today so that you might apprehend the joy of God's Word, joy of knowing God's Word and obeying it. And thirdly, just to practically um, to be a student of the Word of God, you must put aside amusements of this world. I'm not talking about like a puritanical, Amish-like existence. You know, I'm not saying that at all. But everything in its place. But you, we need to understand the threat of amusement. This world wants to amuse us. Amuse, right? They, they want us not to think. They want us to have just sensory, sensual, live in a sensual, sensory uh, uh, lifestyle experience. We must war against that. Like we protect our bodies, we must protect our minds that will cause us to be dull, cause us to, to think sensually, not like intellectually, not biblically, not rationally. Right? Uh, being mindful of the things that lead us astray, not just morally, but in our minds. Talking to a brother, he was saying he heard our sermons on like, video games, and as he was listening to it, he got convicted. He was listening to it online. He put away his video games. Man, God honors not against video games, right? I'm not saying you know, go play solitaire, or minesweeper. I'm not. Right? I mean, I'm just saying in its place, right? I mean, saying as grow as men, as right? I mean, just you understand what I'm saying, but it's just the heart, like man, God, I'm a Christian. God saved me. I have the Bible to understand. And this thing is just hindering me. It's causing me to be dull. It's toys. I'm a man now. I'm growing up. And time for me to lay hold of the Bible and study it. Those kind of convictions. Uh, to, to, to do that and to grow as a man or woman of God requires to say no to even good things in this world so that we might commit ourselves to religious study. Let's pray.
Oh, Father, we, what Professor Pettigrew taught us last week is a um, present threat and a danger to us. He taught us how second-generation Christians can become calloused to spiritual things, how we can be, be dulled and hearts numb to things that are awesome and glorious because we've been reared in them from youth. Lord, we see that in our uh, approach to the Bible. We see it how our Bible collects dust. We see it how our minds are dull and are not filled with the Scriptures. We see it in our lack of diligence and, and our lack of thrill in studying the Bible and obeying it and living out its precepts. Oh Lord, we see it and how we listen to God's Word, and in how we respond to the God's Word when it is preached. Lord, Reformation is not possible without the Word and without the Holy Spirit. So Lord, we throw ourselves before Your throne, and we appeal to Your mercy, we appeal to Your grace and Your kindness. Lord, we know You have been patient with us, but we ask You be more patient with us. Lord, that Take away our possessions. Take away our reputation. Take away all things that are precious to us. Take away even our families. But Lord, please, never take away the Bible from us. Never take away the truth of you revealed to us in the Bible from us. Lord, may it be dear, precious to us, and may it translate into how we study it and how we live according to it. We thank you, Lord, for your grace. We thank you for uh, just the grace you have given to us and allowing us to study and even listen to this teaching this day. It's all by your goodness and grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.